I've asked Jeff to come up. I got to make up my mind which mic I'm going to use. <laughs> he shared something uh, during our rehearsal this morning, and I, and I asked him if he would just share it briefly this morning because it blessed me to hear it. I think it'll bless you, and it also goes in line with uh, some of what I'm talking about this morning. So, Jeff. All right. Um, in early 2020, everybody was dealing with COVID. I was dealing with some physical issues of my, my own, and at that time, we were in need of help. And we were praying a lot for help from the Lord, and we were going to food banks and collecting food from people at different food banks, and uh, we were using that food to help other people in the neighborhood the best that we could. And through the course of a year or so, we ended up building a small business that we have just started in Brooksville serving food. And it's amazing how God can work in a circle with you because the people that were helping us, Jericho Roads and other ministries in the neighborhood that were helping us, showed up at our door a couple of weeks ago and came into the restaurant and said, oh, you've got some nice food. And Renee and I are like, aren't you the ones that helped us? And we're, and she's like, well, we do ministries around, and we're like, well, you know, we're trying to do something for the neighborhood as well. So we were able to donate to these groups food that we were making in our restaurant, food and, and uh, desserts and stuff, so that they could give those to the homeless and the people that needed it that were at their services. So over the last few weeks, we've been able to contribute back to the same people who helped us in a rough time, and now we're helping them to reach out to help other people. And they've been coming into our shop and telling us testimonies of how nice it's been and how it's touched other people to be able to have such good food and good care. So we just praise God Amen. that we are able to give something back. And that's what we really want to do. They gave to us. Now we're returning the favor and giving back. So that's my testimony to God. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. I like to hear stuff like that. God is a good God. Amen. Well, if you got your Bibles this morning, you did bring your Bibles, didn't you? This is church. Okay, well, if you didn't, we, you know we got it on the screen as well. But it's a good idea to get your face in the Word and see it. And something, I, I, maybe it's old school, but I just like to, I like the tangibleness of a, of a Bible, physical Bible. Let's open to Ephesians, the fifth chapter. We're going to look at verses 15 through 16. Paul speaking here. <laughs> Out of the mouth of babes. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and make your word come alive in us. Help us to see what changes we need to make in our lives. And we purpose to be doers of the word today and not hearers only. Thank you for helping us and for transforming us into the image of your Son. In the name of Jesus, Amen. 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 Well, today there are nearly 8 billion people living on planet Earth. And though God has made each of us uniquely different, there is one commodity He has given to every living human being. And that commodity is time. It's the most precious commodity we we actually have in this life. And yet it's the most wasted commodity for many people. What is time? The most basic definition of time is a unit of measurement for an order of events. In the Bible, we see it first show up in Genesis 1, verses 3 through 5. 
Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. So from the very beginning, God established a span of time and the duration of a day. Man later invented instruments to measure the order of events within a day and assigned labels to those measurements. Seconds, minutes, hours. And then he invented a calendar to number the days. And even though these measurements of time are fixed, the actual experience of living out time can feel vastly different, can it? Depending on how we're spending it. My wife and I lived over 13 a mile, 1,300 miles apart when we first started dating. So it wasn't unusual for us to spend an hour at a time talking to each other on the phone. And we still like to talk to each other, believe it or not, after 30-some years. And yet it seemed to us like only minutes had passed when we talked. These were the days when you actually got charged for long-distance calls, before cell phones. And so our phone bills left no doubt as to how long we were talking with each other. On the other hand, I've had the experience of sitting in a dentist chair for 10 to 15 minutes getting a tooth drilled, and it seemed like an hour to me. Can I I get a witness there? (laughs) We say time is flying when we're doing something we like to do. We say it's dragging when we're doing something we don't like to do. But regardless of how different the length of these experiences feel, their actual duration is measured in the same fixed units. Because we live our natural lives in this particular dispensation of time, our clocks govern us from the time we awake in the morning until the time we go to bed at night. In fact, everything we do in this natural world, from the time we're born till the time we die, is measured in natural time. Each new day brings us 24 hours. If you were curious, that converts into 1,440 minutes. And yet people live like they have all the time in the world, putting off to tomorrow what they can do today. If someone gave you $1,440 each day and said, spend it, or lose it. How diligent would you be to comply? Pretty diligent, I'm, I'm guessing. Here's some simple facts of life. <clears throat> Yesterday is gone forever. We might have the memory of it, but we can't go back and change what we did yesterday. Tomorrow isn't here yet. We can and we should plan for it, prepare for it. But since it's in the future, we can't live in it yet. What we do have is the present, the now we're living in. It's been said yesterday is but a canceled check. Tomorrow is a promissory note. Today is all the cash you have, so spend it wisely. Singer-songwriter Paul Simon, who's in his 80s now, wrote a song called The Lord on his latest album that contemplates mortality. He's not a believer, it's just this song caught my ear. One line from the song reads, I've been thinking about the great migration. Noon and night, they leave the flock. Well, those who keep track of such things tell us that two people leave the flock every second and fly off into eternity. Two more. Two more. Two more. Pretty soon, you and me. 
Hallelujah. I got an illustration I want to do. I'm not big on illustrations, but this one just blessed me, and I thought, I'm going to use this. I want you to use your imagination here this morning, folks. This rope, imagine it's only 50 feet long, but you have to use your imagination and pretend that it goes forever. It feels like it when I'm trying to unwind it, but it really doesn't. But it, but you need to use your imagination in that regard. Okay, I practiced this at home. It went much smoother. I could have got a thicker rope, but I actually have another use for this rope when I'm through with this presentation. So it's all about efficiency. Amen. <clears throat> So, we said this rope goes on forever. Imagine this rope is the timeline of your existence. All right? Quite a long existence. You see this blue part? It's probably difficult to see, but you can see it's darker in that one spot. This represents your time on earth. You've got a few short years on earth, and then you've got all of this. Eternity somewhere else. What's mind-boggling is that for so many of us, this blue part is all we think about. We say, I'm going to work really, really hard during this section right here, and I'm going to save, 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 so I can really enjoy this section right here. But what about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? The Bible teaches us that what we do with this blue part right here is going to determine how we're going to exist for millions and millions of years forever. So why do we spend so much of our effort and so much of our energy on this little blue part, trying to make ourselves as comfortable as possible, enjoying ourselves as much as we can? There's nothing wrong with being comfortable. There's nothing wrong with enjoying life. But if those things become the primary focus of all of our waking hours, then we'll miss God's best for our lives. Our life on earth is the briefest thing we'll ever do, as you can see right here, in all of our existence. We get one chance to live this life on earth in our mortal bodies, and then comes eternity. Paul said in Philippians 3, 13 through 14, One thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's using the analogy of a runner here. The word goal means distant mark or target one has in view. I believe the goal Paul is talking about is finishing the course or the race God has set for you. Sin, which means to miss the mark, is anything that takes you off that course and will cause you to miss the target. That's actually a pretty tame definition of sin. More to the point, sin is willful, in-your-face disobedience to God. It's saying, Lord, I want to do this more than I want to be obedient to you and obedient to your plan for my life. Despite all you've done for me and all you've promised me, I love me more than I love you, so I'm going to choose to do this. I mean, you might as well extend your middle finger to the Lord because a heart with that kind of rebellious attitude is just as obscene. 
We're never going to finish the course he set before us as long as we think we can pick and choose what part of his will we want to obey. Let's go back to Paul's analogy of the believer as a runner, pressing toward his goal. How does a person become a winning athlete? By listening to lectures, watching movies, reading books, maybe cheering at the games. No, professional athletes spend their time wisely, constantly monitoring their activities. They hone their skills, eat the proper foods, and get sufficient sleep to ensure that they stay in prime physical condition. Well, if an earthly athlete has to spend his or her time wisely to win a temporal prize, how much more should we believers make the most of our time on this earth, focusing on the target the Lord has set before us? Because there is a tangible, eternal prize awaiting the victors. That prize includes the rewards the believer receives at the judgment seat of Christ. In 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul talks about receiving a crown of righteousness along with all those who love the Lord's appearing. I believe Paul's talking about an actual crown here, not just using a metaphor. What that crown is made of, no one really knows. One writer surmised that it could be the glory of God encircling our heads like a halo. If you think about the millennial reign of Christ, Jesus will literally reign as king on this earth. And all of us who have been redeemed during the church age will rule with him, and that includes you and me, will rule with him over the saved remnant of Israel and the righteous Gentile nations that come out of the tribulation. This just isn't fantasy, folks. This is what the Word teaches. I heard Keith Moore say one time that those living in the millennium who were saved after the church was raptured will look upon us in awe. Say, and they'll say, those are the redeemed ones. And I wonder if our crown of righteousness is one of the things that initially sets us apart as those who are called to rule and reign with the Lord. That idea certainly gives significance to the crown as our prize. Peter calls it an unfading crown of glory. It stands as an emblem of life, of joy, of reward, and authority. Hallelujah. Let's look again at our text from Ephesians 5, 15 through 16. Paul is writing to Gentile Christians living in the city of Ephesus, who are fairly new believers. Paul's concern is that they are at risk of falling back into the lifestyles they came out of. And he admonishes them to live separated lives. The city of Ephesus at the time this, this epistle was written was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire with a population of around 300,000 people was an important commercial and shipping center. It was also a great tourist city. The Temple of Artemis being the great attraction that drew visitors from all around the Roman Empire. Paul writes in verse 17, See then that you walk circumspectly. A better way to say that is be careful. Take heed how you walk. Walk with exactness and precision. Like a soldier on patrol in a minefield who needs to know where the mines are placed and must be careful to avoid them. Paul is saying we must choose our steps carefully because the enemy has littered the path with dangerous obstacles that will cause us serious harm if we're careless. Paul said not as fools but as wise. Walk as people who know the true meaning and purpose of life. 
In the previous chapters of this letter to the Ephesians, Paul laid out the fundamental truths of the gospel. Among other things, he told them how they were raised with Christ and made to sit together with him in heavenly places. He told them they were God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now he's telling them to apply that knowledge in a practical way and walk it out. In verse 16, we find the key verse for this message. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. That word translated redeem is a term used in the marketplace. It means to buy up an opportunity. In the rustic marketplaces of old, the merchant man would come to the marketplace in the center of town and bringing his wares with him. And there he would transact his business. He watched the market and waited for a favorable opportunity, either to buy or to sell. And when that opportunity presented itself, he acted quickly. He bought up his opportunity. It's a lot like day traders in the stock market today. They might have their eye on a particular stock they think is undervalued, but has great potential. And when they see its share price go down to a certain price point, they buy up that opportunity and they purchase the stock. They have redeemed it from the market and it is now in their possession. But the transaction was done with calculation. Why did Paul write that the days are evil? If Paul had wrote to the citizens of the city of Ephesus, and said that they were living in evil days, they probably would have resented his accusation. Their past was marked by great progress, and they were prospering as never before, as the most important trading center in the Mediterranean region. Some said Ephesus at this time was second only to Rome as a cosmopolitan center of culture and commerce. The great temple of Artemis, which was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, was also the banking house for the merchants who poured their wealth into the temple for safekeeping. So we had a blend of religion and commerce here. Sounds a little familiar. It employed a large staff of eunuchs, priests, and temple virgins to assist in the sacred pagan rites in honor of Artemis. Life was good for many of the Ephesians. But Paul wasn't writing to the citizens of Ephesus, was he? When he said the days are evil, he was writing to the church, the church, the believers at Ephesus. The word translated evil doesn't refer to malicious character, but rather malicious influence. So Paul is essentially saying, buy up the opportunities presented to you in the midst of a culture that exerts a malicious influence from dawn to dusk. How are they to buy up the opportunities in the midst of an evil, ungodly culture? In Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, Paul tells the Ephesian believers, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In Ephesians 4, 32, he says, be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. In Ephesians 5, 1 through 2, he says, Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And then in verses 8 through 11 of that same chapter, Paul tells him to walk as children of light, 
which will expose the works of darkness being carried out around them. So how are they to buy up the opportunities in the midst of an evil culture? Primarily walk in love. Amen? Let's bring this into the day we live. Like the believers in Ephesus, we live in a place that has a history of tremendous progress and tremendous prosperity. Instead of the temple of Artemis, we have our great financial institutions and corporations that transact their commerce these days locked arm in arm with the secular religion of social justice. From the perspective of a believer, there are ungodly pressures around us from dawn to dusk. But there are also remarkable opportunities that we can buy up to allow the light of God's love to shine brightly in the darkness around us and change people's lives. With only 24 hours in each day, how do we know which opportunities to buy up? Let me read you a story about Smith Wigglesworth, the humble, uneducated plumber from Bradford, England, who never shied away from the opportunities God put in his path. Before he shares this illustration, he says, there's nothing impossible to a man or woman filled with the Holy Spirit. When you're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, God will wonderfully work wherever you go. When you are filled with the Spirit, you will know the voice of God. And then he gives this illustration. He said, when I was going to Australia recently, our boat stopped at Aden and at Bombay. In the first place, the people came around the ship selling their wares, which included beautiful carpets and all sorts of oriental things. There was one man selling some ostrich feathers. As I was looking over the side of the ship watching the trading, a gentleman next to me said, would you go shares with me in buying that bunch of feathers? Wigglesworth thought, what do I want with feathers? I have no use for such things and no room for them either. But the gentleman put the question to me again. Will you go shares with me in buying that bunch? The Spirit of God said to me, do it. So what's he got here? He's got an opportunity that he can buy up. The price of the feathers was three pounds. But the gentleman said, I have no money with me, but if you will pay the man for them, I will send the cash down to you by the purser. I was trying to put this in modern day terms. (laughs) Sounds like a scam to me, but there was a difference. This is back in the probably uh, early 1900s. So Wigglesworth said uh, he paid for the feathers and gave the gentleman his share. I said to him, no, please don't give that money to the purser. I want you to bring it to me personally to my cabin. And then afterwards he said to the Lord, what about these feathers? And the Lord showed him that he had a purpose for him purchasing these feathers. So about 10 o'clock that night, the gentleman came to his cabin. He said, I brought the money. Wigglesworth said to him, it's not your money that I want. It's your soul that I'm seeking for God. Right there, the man opened up the plan of his life and began to seek God. And that morning, so this was 10 o'clock at night, he came to the tour But by morning, he wept his way through to God's salvation. Hallelujah. Glory to God. You know, we see the importance from this example of allowing the Holy Spirit to lead us when determining which opportunities to buy up. I thought about this. At some point, Jesus likely passed the lame man begging for alms at the temple gate. Because that man, the Bible says, was laid there every day. But Jesus never stopped to buy up the opportunity to heal that man. 
Because Jesus only did what the Father showed him to do. But when Peter and John passed by the man in Acts 3, they were led to buy up the opportunity and to redeem the time. The man was healed. And Peter proclaimed the gospel to all who saw the miracle. How do we know Peter and John were led? Because when the Sadducees ordered them to stop speaking in the name of Jesus, they responded, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. So they apparently had heard from God when they did this. Sometimes it's going to take persistence on our part to buy up the opportunities the Lord puts before us. Let me read another story from this same book. Uh, it's called Ever Increasing Faith. It's accredited to Smith Wigglesworth. He said, I was traveling one day on a railway station in Sweden. At one station, there boarded the train an elderly woman with her daughter. The woman's expression was so troubled that I asked about her. He's referring to the elderly woman now. I heard that she was going to the hospital to have her leg taken off. She began to weep as she told that the doctors had said there was no hope for her unless her leg was amputated. Smith Wigglesworth said to, through his interpreter, tell her that Jesus can heal her. He's buying up an opportunity here, isn't he? The instant that this was said to her, it was as though a veil was taken off her face. It became so light. We stopped at another station, and now the car filled up with people. There was a rush of men to board the train. And the devil said, you're done. But Smith said, I knew I had the best proposition. The hard things are always opportunities to get the Lord more glory when he manifests his power. So now he's got this car crammed full of people. And what does Wigglesworth do? Wigglesworth do? He said, the train began moving and I crouched down and in the name of Jesus commanded the disease to leave. The old lady cried, I'm healed. I know I'm healed. She stomped her leg and said, I'm going to prove it. So when we stopped at another station, she marched up and down and shouted, I'm not going to the hospital. Once again, our wonderful Jesus had proven himself, a healer of the brokenhearted, a deliverer of one that was bound. But would Jesus have been able to prove himself a healer had Wigglesworth not redeemed that time and taken Bought up that opportunity? No. The answer is no. Sometimes it's going to cost us more than just our time to buy up the opportunities the Lord puts before us. And it may be tough on our flesh. Let me read one more story to you. Back in 1986, Billy Graham raised millions of dollars to bring 8,000 ministers from developing countries to Amsterdam for a time of training and encouragement. These weren't just any ministers. These were ministers that were called barefoot evangelists. They had little education and hacked through jungles, crossed rivers, and endured rejection to bring the gospel to out-of-the-way places. One of the barefoot evangelists was named Joseph. While at the conference, he asked if he could meet Billy Graham. So they were able to find a few minutes in Graham's schedule that week for Joseph to meet with him. And his, here's Joseph's story as recounted by someone who was actually there. As a young man, Joseph had heard the gospel on a dusty African road, and he responded instantly by trusting Jesus as his Savior. He soon longed to return to his native village and share the good news of the kingdom of God. So he wanted to buy up an opportunity, didn't he? He wanted to redeem the time doing something for the Lord. 
So he went from door to door when he got home, telling others what had happened to him. And he expected everybody's face would light up, but instead they were filled with rage. According to his report, the men of the village seized Joseph and held him down while a woman brutally flogged him with barbed wire. After the beating, he was dragged into the bush and left there to die. He crawled to a watering hole, spent several days recovering. And listen to this. He decided he either left something out of the story or shared the message incorrectly. So he worked on his testimony, rehearsed it, prayed, limped back to the village to try again, saying, Jesus died for you so you might have forgiveness and come to know the living God. He got another flogging. Recovering a bit, he went back a third time and was whipped a third time. The barbed wire the third time was cutting into the old wounds of the first time. But by now, one of the women who was beating him started to weep uncontrollably. As Joseph lapsed into unconsciousness, he saw others who were beginning to cry also. He awoke in his own bed. His former tormentors were now trying to save his life. As a result of his patient witness, a whole village came to Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. After Joseph told his story to Graham, the man pulled up his shirt to show Graham the scars on his chest and on his back. When the meeting ended and Joseph had left the room, Billy Graham said, I'm not fit to untie this man's shoes and he wanted to see me? Very few of us in the Western church will suffer to the extent that Joseph, the barefoot evangelist, did as we run our race. At least for now, the worst we might experience when sharing our faith, some awkwardness, maybe a few tough questions, and some embarrassment when we aren't sure how to answer those questions. But as we get closer to the end, we shouldn't be surprised if we meet opposition when attempting to buy up the opportunities the Lord gives us. Jesus said in John 15:18, "The world hates you. You know that it hated me before it hated you." Some might be wondering, is it really that important for me to run my race? I mean, I have enough to do just living my life. Others might be tempted to just kick their feet up and relax and say, "Well, I know my salvation has already been taken care of by Jesus on the cross." Listen, we carry out our kingdom, mission, and redeem our time so we can glorify God and to show Him how much we love Him. We do it out of worship and obedience and gratitude. We do it because if we truly have a changed life, we know that nothing will bring us greater joy and fulfillment in serving our God. There's a time to weep. There's a time to laugh. There's a time to sleep. There's a time to work. These are the days when you will reap where other men have sown. Second John 8 says, Be diligent so that you receive your full reward. Soon and very soon, there's going to be a great migration called the rapture. But if the Lord tarries His coming, we're all going to go by the way of our fathers in death. But either way, there will be no more opportunities left for us to buy up in this natural life. And our time for earning our full reward will have passed. Now is the time to enter into the labor of the Lord and buy up the opportunities he puts before us. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. I want you to repeat this prayer after me. Father God, God, 
Forgive me for wasting time. For having wrong priorities and wrong pursuits. Reveal to me the best use and the highest purpose for my remaining time on this earth. Work in me to will and to do your good pleasure. Make me perfect and complete in every good work to do what's pleasing in your eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, go out and redeem the time this week, folks. Look for those opportunities that the Lord is sending your way to buy up and see Jesus be glorified. Amen? Hallelujah. You're dismissed. Glory to God.